0: start turning there it's actually it's only four chapters long it's a really small book and like Ricky said it's a uh, kind of a it's, he's he's an odd it's an odd story and in fact if you read it all the way to the end you read the last version you're like that's it that's it <laughs> it's done uh, and we'll get there uh, I, I start us off today I'm gonna give us some context some background and then Ricky will take it on out from there. But before we get started, I'd like to actually, um, it's kind of been on my heart and I prayed it over here too. Um, I want to pray not only for this time here, but um, at least loosely and not in detail, but for the, for the nation this week and everything that's happened, um, it's been kind of a rocky week, right? So as far as that goes, can you not hear me? Hello? Hello? I got lower that better? Can you hear me now? A little bit. Yeah. Well, you have the refrigeration back there. Is that better? Okay. Maybe I need to turn the gain up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll mess with it here just a little bit. There we go. Um, but let's, let's, let's turn our hearts to pray real quick. It won't be too long, but I want to, I want to pray for those things. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today um, as your people, um, humbled and raising you up, knowing that we are mere men and women, and you are God. We know that you are sovereign, that you control all things, that you direct the nations and the leaders as, as you will. So we uh, we don't we don't worry and get upset as the world gets upset because we know that all things are yours and that you are in control, but I want to pray as a church that um, I want to pray for our leaders, for our nation. It's really going through some some hard times and we know that again you are in control of that, but we want to pray that you uh, continue to to steer those things to um, be in the hearts of our leaders, to be in the, to, uh, if you will, change the hearts of the nation, Um, but that uh, we give that to you, Father, and I want to pray for the peace for every one of these members here, that um, that while things get rocky around us, that uh, we remember that we have a stronghold in you, that you are our peace and our hope, and um, I pray for this time today. not, as Ricky said, for eloquence on my part, and in fact I tend to stumble over my speech, but that the Holy Spirit might be here and and teach to each of our hearts that uh, the imperfect words from an imperfect instrument such as myself might reach the hearts of of those who are listening here because of the Holy Spirit and what He does in, in our hearts. So I pray for your presence here today and your teaching. We love you, dear Father precious name. Amen. Okay, let's go to, to Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read out of the, the NIV. I have that. Um, that's, that's my translation here, um, although uh, we often go out of the ESV here. Um, but let's, let's just start off with, with, um, with reading it, yeah? First chapter. sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break apart. All of the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, "'How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish.' Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, The men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And that's where we'll leave the story. Um, A lot of you already know the story, actually, so it's not a a mystery. Um, I'm going to be speaking a lot about stories this morning. I told Ricky that um, when he asked yesterday, how's it going, I said, well, it's not... maybe not quite as, 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 as scripture-rich as possible, but it is definitely gospel-centered, yeah, today. Um, and I'm going to be talking a lot about stories, um, and I wanted to kind of start with uh, just a personal story of mine um, first, yes? So when I was growing up, Mark can attest to this, there's a picture somewhere of it. Um, my parents gave for me for Christmas a sweatshirt that had... a a measuring stick from arm to arm and it said something about a great fish story because we like to go fishing and the fish was this big okay um and i it's uh, it's my parents to give me corny sweatshirts like that they do that um and i still have that and i look like a i look like a (laughs) oh i look so stupid (laughs) in the picture um but what I want to say is that we're talking about stories this morning, and some of them are, are uh, I, I think of that because this is Jonah and the fish, right? This is Jonah and the whale. This is what we talk about. We learn this as kids, and 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 we think, and we think it's just a story, okay? And stories are are great, but some stories are just you know they're like a fish story. It's actually bigger than it is, right? Okay, it's actually not true. Well, um, I'm going to be talking about this as a story, as a tale, but. Notice that uh, when, I, when, I, when I say that, this is a historical tale. Yes, um, some, t- some tales are, 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 are meant to be fictional. and Some we tell, you know, if Ricky says, how was your weekend? Well, let me tell you the story of what went, ha- what went down. It was real, <laughs> okay? And we tell stories. And this one is that historical story. Yes, I want to make sure that you know that, okay? So you probably don't remember, but if you've heard me preach before, you may, may remember me telling you that one of the joys in my life is listening and reflecting on stories and great tales, and how stories are often just hints of the gospel of redemption, that there's a story behind the story. So it should come as no surprise to you that one of my favorite activities and favorite nights of the week is movie night. I love movie night, great tales are told, heroes, love, epic missions that are sure to fail but are somehow accomplished. In them I find that my heart longs for something beyond it, I get so wrapped up in it sometimes as Alyssa can attest to, (laughs) and for me the best tales have some grand resolution where peace and love and joy reign. I started reflecting on this again this week, because a few nights ago, uh, it was movie night. Okay? We generally have one movie night a week, so I love it so much, and Mark, and Alyssa and I, we started discussing the shows that Netflix brings out, okay? And I was lamenting, like a snob, that some shows just lose their appeal because they become the same story over and over again from season to season. So I stop watching them because I get bored. I want to bring this to your attention because sometimes I think we think of the stories of the Bible in the same way. Many of us have heard the story of Jonah since our childhood. We often refer to the story as, what did I just say? Jonah and the whale, right? Or Jonah and the fish. It's actually a word used for fish, but we're going to say whale probably a lot. And because of the grandiosity of the fish swallowing Jonah that often becomes the focus of the story. And if this is what is in your mind, we're going to explore in this book a, a different story, the true story of the Jonah account, yes? The story behind the story, which is actually the story itself. So the title of the sermon is, and I, I, uh, Alyssa came in, and she's like, really? <laughs> and I wrote it down because I felt like like God was whispering to me saying, this is hilarious. Uh, so the title is A Whale of a Tale." Okay, title, it's, it's a whale of a tale but then subtitle, <laughs> but not Jonah's tale. Okay, so another thing Mark, Alyssa and I discussed um, at that time, see we get off, I get wrapped up in this, if you know me, I just like, I go off on these things, was a literary quote, which I think you'll be proud of, okay, from the American author, Willa Cather. And if you don't know that name, we know that name because we studied her because she's like Nebraska, you know, all things. And um, in her book, O Pioneer, she says, there are only two or three human stories. And they go repeating themselves, they go on repeating themselves as fiercely as if they had never happened before. I always find that interesting. That's a nice thing to reflect on. In other words, there are only a few unique storylines when stories are boiled down to their essence. And from the redeemed Christian's point of view, you can see how there's a spiritual truth in here. Yes? We would argue that there is one main story with many different subplots. This large story, the story of all history, is the redemption story, the gospel, right? God, stop right there. (laughs) God, the first and main character of the story, is ultimately who it is ultimately about and who it is ultimately for. And who made this whole story himself anyway? God creates, loves, loses. Then, at great cost to himself, and when he didn't have to, he pursues and redeems back to himself. He restores. He restores the creation that separated itself from him, a creation, mankind, that was wholly unworthy, enemies, even, who didn't and still do not in themselves want him. He pursues them. God saves sinners to be with him and enjoy him forever. And as we've said before, it's three, three, the, the plot is in three words, God saves sinners. Right? So this is the story behind the story. The main story about which all the other stories point to. Kind of hard to find that in a nugget in the in the Bible. But um, John 3.16, I think this is why we use it so much. It kind of sums some of that up. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he goes on in 17 and says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And in John's first letter, he also says, "In this is love, not that God no, sorry, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins." So this is the story of history. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of the gospel. It is God's story, as we turn here to Jonah. So the book of Jonah is not a story titled Jonah and the Whale. It's actually another tale. It is the larger story we just described. God pursues mankind. God saves sinners. It's the gospel. The story we want to tell every week here at Cross Live, and the story we insist must never grow old or cold. I'm going to turn this down just a bit. And I think... This is one of the reasons God gives us so many subplots in history, right? If this is the overarching narrative. One of which is Jonah's story, as we're going to look at here. And there's David's story, and Joseph's story, and Esther's story, and Ruth's story. And others of which are your story, my story. All stories that we tell and reflect on but must see in them the larger story, God's. So I believe God uses these smaller stories to show us him and his purpose, his story, from new angles, new facets of the diamond, new stones unturned. So we turn and look into the whole book of Jonah in the next few weeks, and at chapter 1 today, let's start rereading through it again, through this lens of the larger story. So Jonah again, 1. 1 through 3. Remember, this is not about Jonah, this is about God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. (laughs) But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord, or to flee from the presence of the Lord, as some say. So we're going to start looking at this. But before we get to that storyline, um, let's look at some of the historical context. Uh, Ricky said, you know, you're kind of ushering us into Jonah, so I want to give us a little bit of background um, to, to get us there. I also want to reinforce that, that while it seems like it's like a, a story, and as, as we talked about in our Hebrew Bible classes, some sto- like he would refer to these as myths. I want to make sure that this is, not, this is a myth in historical context. It's history. Yes, Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah and Jonah as being something historically bound. Yes. According to 2nd Kings then in 1425, uh, 2 Kings 1425, Jonah came from the town near Nazareth. I think it's called Gath Hepher or something like that. The context places him during the long and prosperous reign of Jeroboam II around between 793 and 753 BC, making him a prophet to the northern tribes just prior to Amos during the first half of the 8th century. So we place him here about 760 B.C., yes? And in fact, if you think, if, if you know your history and you kind of look at it a little bit, the Pharisees were wrong when they said no prophet has arisen out of Galilee because here Jonah was a Galilean, yeah? So he, there was a prophet from Galilee. During this time, Israel enjoyed a time of relative prosperity and peace, both Syria and Assyria were weak, allowing Jeroboam II to enlarge the northern borders of Israel to where they had been in the days of David and Solomon. But spiritually, it was a time of poverty. Religion was real, ritualistic and increasingly idolatrous, and justice had become perverted. Peacetime and wealth had made her bankrupt spiritually, morally, and ethically. <laughs> And as a result, God was God was to punish her, as we know, by bringing destruction and captivity from the Assyrians. a Generation later, about 40 years later, in 722 B.C., so kind of have your timeline here. And as well, and we'll look at this. Or Ricky will in the future. Nineveh's repentance comes with Jonah going to preach to them. Um, and and uh, I found this interesting doing uh, my reading that that it was probably aided by the first of two plagues that they experienced in 765 and then again in 759 B.C., Nineveh. And then there was a solar eclipse about 763 B.C., a little bit before he got there. So preparing them for Jonah's message of of, of judgment. Nineveh, the city to which he goes to, is a city of about 550 miles northeast of Israel, where Jonah was. Um, and it was a city on trade routes, making it wealthy and powerful. It served as the Assyrian capital for many years. It was also very large in population, perhaps the largest of the time, scholars say. Um, they, uh, some it at about 100,000 people when, when Jonah went there. And about 300,000 by 700 B.C. And some, I even saw some estimates saying it had at one time up to 600,000 people. So it's, even by today, it's pretty large, right? Something unique also, before we get back to the storyline, we say Jonah is kind of a weird book or weird prophet, right? Jonah was not, and I think, if I remember right, the only prophet, that was not a prophet for Israel, okay, but for its enemy, the Assyrians. Which probably explains why the, Assyrian, Assyrian, the, the Pharisees forgot about him. And he's the only prophet, I think I'm going to say this later, that actually refused the call of God. <laughs> he's the only one that said, nope, going the other way. So this book records the account of God sending Jonah to the Assyrians and Jonah's refusal. Okay, So back to the storyline. So we read, the word of the Lord came. In fact, if you go to the very first and very last sentence, it's all about what God did. Yes, in this book. So God acted. The main character. God spoke. He gave a command. He said, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Basically saying, I want to I bring up its evil against me, and if they should repent, show them mercy and compassion. Now, if we think about this, and God's work in his people as the main story throughout the Bible, we might ask the same question that was probably troubling Jonah why why them if you go back and you listen and you read up on what the assyrians did i'm not going to mention it here because we have some you know young ears but i read on some of that stuff i was like kind of makes your skin crawl it was pretty brutal and israel knew firsthand i'm sure what that was okay they knew that so jonah's thinking What did they do so that God would go out of the way to call them, to speak to them? We can imagine him saying, in fact, they're the enemy, God. Do you know what they've done? They are brutal, merciless people who have done great atrocities to your people. You should be executing judgment on them, not calling them back to you. No way, I'm not going. If you want this done, ask someone else. That's basically what he does, right? In fact, so we read here, we say, it says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, the port near there, found a ship, paid the fare, and went as far away as he could to Tarshish, right? Away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you think and reflecting on this, can you see some of the storyline evolving here? You pointed out God, in his plan, is calling a people. Enemies, even, that we think as enemies to himself. Do we fully know why he chose them? No. Is there anything they did to earn it? Absolutely not. They were enemies even of it, right? It's all by grace. Unmerited. Unearned. In fact, it might be because they were so cruel and ugly that God chose to show him His favor. To magnify the fact that no one earns His or her way to God, no one deserves it. Paul says in Romans, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." Well, how about another part of the story? So, if we think why the Assyrians, have you ever think why Jonah, right? Well, we could reason that he was a part of the chosen people of God, the Hebrews, the Israelites. And to them was given the knowledge of the relationship of God. To them was given the moral law. They were the insiders, the special ones. So it's not a stretch to think, okay, well, that makes sense that he picked Jonah. He's part of God's people. And you know this is what Jonah was thinking and the very beliefs on which he built his life, actually. Here's the rub, if you will. And this is the reason he refused to go. In fact, not just refused, but went to the trouble to travel to Jop on the coast, use his own money to buy passage on the and flee to a city on the far edges of what they knew to be the world at the time. In fact, so he was asked to go 550 miles northeast. He chose to go twenty-five to go twenty-five hundred miles west. Okay? About five times the distance. And it's estimated to be... In a, they don't know what it exactly is, but they estimate it to be in about the southernmost part of Spain. Okay, So we're, we're beginning to draw a contrast here. We have God's chosen people, the insiders, and we have the pagans, the outsiders. In man's view, the privileged, the unprivileged. And if we keep going, and I'm, again, I'm speaking in, in a human extrapolation here, the deserving... And the undeserved. But before we flesh this out, because you kind of see where I'm going, let's read just a little bit further. I like to read again and again, so we get this fresh in our mind. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break apart. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own god, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah <laughs> had gone below deck, where he was laying and fell into a deep sleep, which is. Kind of absurd, I think, but he did. The captain went to him and said, "How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe He will take notice of us, and we will not perish." Then the sailors said to each other, "Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity." So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, "Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble? What did you do? Who do you, where do you come from? Where is your country? From what people are you?" And he answered, "I am a Hebrew." And I worshiped the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them. What have you done? But they knew that he was running away from the Lord, because he had told him so. The sea grew rougher and rougher. And they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down? He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will calm down. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. That's important. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, "O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, O Lord. Have done as you please." Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. Don't worry, we're not going to pick the the part. We're not going to pick this apart piece by piece. We're going to take the whole. Okay. As with much of Scripture, we probably could, but that's not what I want to focus on. I want to continue to compare and contrast our characters. Yes? This is a story, by the way. Yeah? So we're going to focus on the larger story of redemption through these characters and then apply that story to our lives. Okay? Let's start with a diagramming or a kind of a caricature, caricature of, our, of our characters. First, we have God. Right, We have him again. He hurls the storm. He decides... He's not going to let Jonah have the easy way out. In fact, you know, if I were God, I'd probably be like, okay, I'll get someone else. You're not going to participate in this awesome story. (laughs) Okay? But he doesn't. He's not off the hook. And in fact, we see a grandiose picture of God using his omnipotence and sovereignty over creation to get the attention of and thwart the will of Jonah. In essence, Jonah's will will not thwart God's purposes. But we could say, like I said, God could have just moved on to another more willing person, but he chose Jonah. He sticks with Jonah. He doesn't give up on Jonah, even when Jonah abandoned, refused God. We could say more about that, right? And It's one of the hearts of the story, actually. But let's keep going. Next character, Jonah. God's chosen prophet a Hebrew, which they felt very proud of, with a rich history of Yahweh, God's faithfulness. He was rightly related to the true God, calling him the true God. He's the insider. One, two, final characters, in, at least in this chapter. We have the mariners, the sailors, yes. They were Gentiles with no history of relationship with Yahweh God. They worshipped many false gods, not the true God, Outsiders of the covenant. So we have God, Jonah, who's supposed to be, we'll say, a Hebrew, so a a Christian, if you will, chosen by God. God's people. And we have not God's people. Okay? Going back to Jonah, God's people. Although he was supposed to be part of the chosen people, right with God, worshiper of the true God, he was actually, if you read this closely, he was very spiritually insensitive, wasn't he? And uncompassionate toward other people. He didn't even care, we know he didn't care to save the Ninevites, right? But read closer, he's not even concerned about the lives of the mariners. Then, when asked who he was, how does he identify himself? What's the first thing out of his mouth? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. So his identity lies first, and this is what I was alluding to earlier. Where does, identity, where does his identity lie? In his culture, his people group, his nationality. And then when he clarifies what he means by I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. He just comes kind of off sounding what? A little proud? A little pompous, a little haughty, right? I mean, what has he done thus far to represent himself as one who comes from God's chosen people? A representative of the grandiose God he says he serves. Don't miss this, church. I hope you're already drawing the parallel here. I'm going to give away some of the Point of the Sermon series here, right here, and what what Ricky said to me several times. We are more like Jonah than we think or want to admit. Who are you? How do you identify yourself? What do you believe in, someone might ask. And you say, I'm a Christian. I serve the Lord, the God of heaven, the only true God. But then, church, how does that come across to someone? And hear me correctly when I say this, but be careful when you say you're a Christian. Take inventory of your life, your actions. How do you, how do I represent the God of heaven, Yahweh, the only true God? What do your actions say? Does I am a Christian come off sounding hollow like Jonah? Does it come off sounding bankrupt? Sobering question. More reflections and questions from Jonah. So, like Jonah, how do you look on those who who you see as enemies of God? Those living in sin. Those living on the outside. We agree, yes, that they are living in rebellion outside right living, outside what God would have, and in fact against God. We affirm that. But what does your heart tell you about how you view them? Like Jonah, God has chosen you, yes. But like Jonah, does that create a sense of pride? Do you see them as outsiders? Do you see them? They don't believe in God them they live in sin them who don't have the right view of God as you do and you can't associate with them or God wouldn't call or choose them they don't deserve it be careful of pride church be careful i say this to myself it sneaks right back in you can't you don't even recognize it sometimes It is against God, and it is for yourself. Pride creates enmity between you and others. He does not love others. This is Jonah's root problem, at least as I see it. The reason he does not love the mariners. It's the reason he does not want to see the Ninevites called back to God. The reason, as you'll see in further weeks, that he is so consumed in himself. It's the problem of the larger story, in fact, it's the problem of your story, and it's the problem of the story. Yeah. Thanks for reflection. But let's keep going. Finally, from Jonah, <laughs> it's a little bit laughable, but it's not. it's sobering. We would see that we see that he would rather die, be hurled into the sea than repent, ask for God's forgiveness, and do what God commanded. right? In Jonah, we have a solemn picture. One who is chosen by God. One who calls himself in right right relationship with God, yet one who rebels. One who says, I am a Hebrew. But one who actually rejects God's commands. He's prideful, he's unloving, and he's self-consumed. Contrast him with the mariners the ones who are outside the covenant, the ones who look not to be chosen. They are not Hebrews and don't have the knowledge of and history with God. Yet, they're the ones who are spiritually sensitive. They're the ones who are fearful of God. They're the ones who are moving toward Him and have a heart willing and open to receive Him. And they're the ones who are concerned for each other's lives and they're the ones concerned for Jonah's life. Jonah says that they should throw him over. But what do they do? They try to do anything but that. They try rowing back to shore. Then, as they are about to do what he says, they do and throw him over, they pray to God, Yahweh. Notice who who prays to God first? Those outside the covenant. Before even Jonah does. That he might forgive them for taking an innocent life. And finally, the mariners, them, that are not the insiders but the outsiders, they become the insiders. What does the Bible say? It says, the worshipers of God. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We'll get more into the story later. Ricky will. But let's, let's, so this is the end of chapter one. Let, let's apply this. What do we take from this church? What do we do? Before we make an application and say, do this or do that, I want, I want us to remember what's this story about. It's about God and him pursuing people, which is the gospel, right? Okay? So the first thing you should do is make sure you are refre- reading and reflecting on God's word. Asking him to teach you the truth, right understanding, daily, a fuller and fuller understanding of the gospel throughout your life. You think you know it, and then he teaches you something more. And I pray that he does for me and for you. You sit under good biblical teaching and pray that your leaders, your preachers, your teachers are in the word and have the Holy Spirit teaching them truth. Why? Because you realize, church, that an orthodox, a correct understanding of the gospel is the only way we can see that larger story, the story behind the story. Yes? It's the only way we can see, that we can say, sorry, that be like the Mariners, or don't be like Jonah. We need to first understand that little profound sentence, God saves sinners. Whatever you call yourself, Hebrew, saved, Christian, chosen, spiritually sensitive, called. We need to understand that we did nothing to be that way. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses. Dead people can't do anything. Whether you identify in the story with the Israelites as chosen or with the Ninevites on the outside, with Jonah or the mariners, you need to understand that neither camp did anything to earn the favor of God. No one can be in right relationship with God without God. No one will choose God. The Gospel says that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. That's in Isaiah, and in Ephesians it says you were dead in your sins, and you were objects of wrath, but God, he's the one who made us alive in Christ. So we must urgently teach this and believe this, and this is what we do here at Cross Life, and this is what we believe, for this is the only way that we will not be puffed up when we preach and teach and proclaim, yes? We've said it before, but the gospel is the only worldview, the only belief system, the only way to view life and not be proud. Every other way is man-centered. Somehow you work there. But the gospel says you didn't do anything. You didn't even seek God. You were enemies of God, in fact, like the Assyrians yet he pursues us daily. I say this is the only way we can't make the mistake of Jonah. This is the only way we can proclaim truth without pride in ourselves. Church, Christian, we are called by God to be his people, the church, not a particular culture, not a particular race, not a particular political party, his people. We are to be distinct people But unless we are always telling ourselves the story, the truth of the gospel, that we did nothing and and are not particularly special, that he would choose us, and that God saves us despite our enmity toward him, despite us running away, despite our weakness, despite our pride. If we remind ourselves of the big narrative, the gospel, the story behind the story, then we can share the truth. We can call the outsiders to be with us, with God, with God, without feeling we are better in some way. Like Jonah. We did nothing. They do nothing. It's all about God and what he did and does. But be careful what you're reading into what I'm saying. We are still called to be holy. We are still called to be set apart. We are called to righteous living as the church. As James says in his letter, faith without deeds is dead. Right? But we can only do this truly in the way God intended, without pride. Only when we understand the gospel. So, church, read, study, reflect on God's word on the gospel. Don't let it grow cold and think you know it down pat. And pray that He might change us into the image of Christ, as He has promised to do. Then we can read this story and see how Jonah, while chosen by God to deliver his message to a people God also chooses to hear it, is not the one to emulate. That the story is not about Jonah, it is not, as we'll most evidently see, how the man overcomes obstacles to triumph, like so many stories are. It's not about being especially like the Mariners either, like there was something special about them to emulate. No, this story is about God. How he loves when he doesn't have to. How he loves against all obstacles. How he pursues when we run. How he chooses without our understanding and without having to explain himself. And with this understanding, then, yes, we can say, don't harden your heart like Jonah. Be careful of Jonah's pride, when blinded, which blinded him to the truth of his actual relationship with God and his spiritual sensitivity in life. We can encourage ourselves to be like the mariners and care about others and fearful of God. These are all very applicable lessons, but they become empty lessons without knowing that larger narrative, right? That larger narrative of how the barrier was between God and all men. All men. How God alone broke down that barrier. How God alone paid the penalty due to all mankind, and how God alone saves us to himself. Wrapping up, I told you I like stories, right? And then I like to find the story behind the story. You see why? This is the greatest story of all. This is the story, not just a story, the reality that changes lives, that changes our lives daily. So, church, as we go throughout Jonah, and as we read the rest of the story, and as we go in our lives this week, remember the larger narrative. Remind yourself of the gospel daily. See the joy and peace you have through what God accomplishes for you, for us, and then let us worship Him. Let's give glory to Him because of that. And let that overflow with love to your neighbors whoever they might be, and with the story of the gospel through our mouths and through our actions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for teaching us today. I I hope that you're the one who speaks to hearts and that you do and that you did. I pray that you might change us to be like Christ as you have promised remind us of what you've done and not what we've done, to make us humble. Pray that you might continue to make the gospel evident and clear to us in ways that that weren't evident before, that we might turn over new stones and see the gospel from different facets and different angles, that it might help change our lives in that way, that it might humble us but that we might also be overjoyed as we we reflect on the good news, the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. We love you, Father, and we worship you through this last song. I pray that we worship you as, as you deserve. You are God in the heavens. You are magnificent. You are beautiful. And you pursue us. You love us. We love you. In your precious name.